Hi there, welcome to episode 103 of Fear of a Black Planet, I think. As always, um, I never remember the bloody number we're at, but at least we're over 100. I'm actually coming up to a year of pretty regular podcasts, which is a good thing. I'm quite proud of it. It's sort of become in some way the mothership of everything I'm doing. I've got a website, jamesblackfolk.com, where you can find my journalism on my blog, the podcast, and <clears throat> links to the music. Sort of the three prongs of uh, my assault on the, on the world and the culture which is very much what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm engaged in war because I believe that there's a war on humanity, in a sense. Whether it's centralised and controlled and conscious, or, you know, I'm not sure. I think sometimes it is, but it's not like some total conspiracy, but I think that there's definitely an attempt to to control and manipulate and turn hum human beings into products. That's really the main enemy. All this stuff about Trump, all this stuff about civil rights and identity politics and the culture wars and red-pilling and woke culture, it's all a distraction, all of it, from the real enemy, the real battle, which is technology and the effect it's having on on the human mind and on, on human beings and being I mean in the existentialist phenomenological sense of, of the sort of fundamental truth about what it means to be human is being and that includes interior experience of exterior circumstances. It's a complex notion but it's, it's bigger than just consciousness as some kind of perceptual emergent process. It's It's the um, the essence of experience of the human experience is the most fundamental truth about 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 uh, human life, um, <clears throat> and I think there is an assault on that being, an attempt to control it, discipline it, and to objectify it. And uh, being an existentialist, and I've talked about this before. I think that the, the, the Great War is this attempt uh, against a kind of psychic imperialism. It's not political. That's The war is not political anymore. All of it's a distraction. All of it. And including fucking Kim Jong-un. and all. The, it's all a distraction because we've, we've always been battling this human tendency to turn ourselves into objects, to make ourselves into ideological objects, economic objects, psychological objects you know that that's that's what the Taoists and the Hindus and all that were talking about with the ego they weren't saying the self what they meant was this attempt to externalize the self to make to turn it into nothing but an object is to deny the true experience of of human subjectivity and human subjectivity is essentially a mystery and and irreducible and that relates to what Kierkegaard pointed out and 
captured about the, the, the Romantics were really influenced by the Eastern ideas, actually. That's something worth exploring, I think. And he was a Romantic who was part of that tradition. And uh, But what I'm driving at is this is the, the, the Great War is not, not even cultural, it's spiritual. Or philosoph it's philosophical. I prefer that word. Philosophical completely captures it for me because I am a philosopher. I'm a trained philosopher. I've got two fucking degrees and anybody who wants to step to me and challenge me, dismiss me with ironic, snarky little comments because I know that's where your mind is going already. I know it because I know you because I know the enemy because I'm not actually an idiot. Anybody that wants to do that will have to face the fact, okay? And I'm not saying this out of some fucking diatribe of the ego. I'm just sick and tired of snarky, sniveling, petty, drugged-up, cokehead hipsters diminishing and depleting and sucking up the life from everything around them just to make their narcissistic fucking insecurities numb for the next 24 hours. And that's really... The people who run the culture, the people who run academia, the people who run the media, the people who run politics, they're all the same. Snarky, sneering, vacuous hipsters. And they are, to use World War II analogies, the appeasers of our age. They, are appe they, they, they seek... A, um, complicity and peace with the enemies of the human psyche. They, they, they feel that we've got to just accept it, man, you know. Um, and I have no problem with technology in and of itself, but my problem is, this is a very specific problem, because, hey, this is not just rambling. I've actually thought about this, and I hope that annoys you, because you can't dismiss it, because I can feel the dismissive energy emanating from my computer here. I can feel it. And this is one of the main weapons of this war, of the enemy, of this psychic imperialism, is a passive-aggressive dismissiveness, nihilistic sneering, because it, it, it has the advantage of killing the resistance, hashtag resistance, in its tracks before it even gets going. You know, it's got... You don't need to fight a bloody war. It's sort of... Um, Soft power, isn't it? But I'm wise to it. And I've been tooling up. And I see it from all angles. And I've been at this a while. And I've failed more than I've succeeded. But I'm still here. And I'm still fighting you. Because you're still the enemy. Anything that seeks to reduce humanity to something other than an irreducible mystery of the soul is my enemy. And that includes you, doesn't it? And it's that that's the great battle of our age. And all of this stuff on Twitter and all of this stuff about social media and Trump, and it's all a distraction from the real war that's being taken place under our noses that we're not we're, that we're not talking about, which is the war on the human soul, the war on the human psyche, the war on the very idea of what it means to be human. And if you want more further proof for that, 
I think that uh, YouTube and Google Analytics are probably the main manifestation of it. This, or I would say, Mail Online. The Mail Online is is sort of uh, which I work for. <laughs> I work for the devil. But it's proof. It's living proof. I mean, and if you look at those things, if you look at the nature of Google algorithms and the and the effect that they have on the human soul and the human being, it's like it's like what Bill Hicks was talking about with advertising. It wasn't just some rant. It was a it was a specific humanist perspective that these powers of persuasion have been escalated from beyond informing and sort of uh, treating people as rational. And by rational, I don't mean purely logical. I mean beings which have reason, i.e. beings which can combine imagination and logic into one logos and can make decisions on those bases, on the basis of reasons for things. That That's what's meant by a critical intelligence. It's not to do with logic, simply logic. It's the combination of... Imaginative, imaginative foresight and rigorous method of decision making. That's critical thinking. Um, so that so that so that the other enemy of this, by the way, uh, is the is academia, and everybody goes on about postmodernism because the the, the that uh, is a war on the logos for sure. But another enemy is analytic scientific scientism, scientific philosophy. You know, the kind of idea that we can reduce everything just to to, to logical games and so it that's, becomes very nihilistic and vacuous as some analytic philosophers themselves have been talking about and that's another great enemy because it, 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 it erodes the only weapon we have against this assault against this uh, uh, tyrannical fascism of the psyche which is human reason the humanist tradition the, the You could call it the, the the Western tradition, but it's it's it. The Western tradition is actually one of the greatest multicultural traditions. That's the irony, because of what I was talking about that influence of the the East on the on Romanticism. That was the great. It's the great counterexample, in fact, to the postcolonials, to the postmodernists, to all the people who want to say that Western civilization or the English speaking civilizations are imperialists. Because it's just um, it's just manifestly wrong. Can't account for romanticism at all. Um, so anyway, this is the battle. Um, and it is a war. And it's a war that nobody seems to be fighting. And I realize that most of my frustrations about the culture wars and things like free speech, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, you name it, Islam, free speech, Trump, Brexit, all the, all the sort of piddling distractions of the day are not actually the real battle. It's kind of like it, it's it, people are just fighting the wrong battle. And I, and I don't mean that in some kind of naive, let's not talk about the world. No, it's actually believed that we we should be engaged with the world as it is in the present in the moment in polit in politics we should not be idiots but we should look at the real problem which is this war on the soul this war on the psyche this attempt to re to turn 
human subject into objects. And that that's that that's the problem. That's where I was getting at is that the Bill Hicks criticism of of, of advertising is the, is the basis of my critique of algorithm-based internet technology and social media, which is an attempt to turn us not a, for, for it because simply well it on the one hand it's an attempt to turn us into products because it that's the that's the actual engine of the economy is our consum our consumer tendencies and that's what and and, and sort of that, that's why they're trying to turn us all into entrepreneurs and and I'm playing into this like I was saying last week I am part of the problem because I'm one of these internet entrepreneurs with my podcast and my blog and my soundcloud and blah 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 I'm just partaking in the exact evil I'm talking about but I have no choice. It's the only weapon I have. And it's not, it's not inherently bad. It's just part of a wider cultural context that's bad. So that's my reasoning. But in the end of the day, I don't need to explain my hypocrisy to you. Because if you, it's like when uh, George Carlin said, you know, I did, I did adverts for this and that. And if you have a problem with that, then you've just got to think the problem through a little bit stronger because it's, it, there are some things worthwhile being hypocritical about. And that's the end of the story. I don't need to. And if, and if you really can't get past that, you're a moron, actually. If you can't get past basic hypocrisy, which is part of the human condition, you're a fucking moron. But the critique is not just that our consumer our consumer choices are the very engine of the economy. So in that sense, it's trying to harness us in the best way it can to 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 just keep doing that. It's also that the method by which it does that is to subvert reason, to to, and and it's become very very subtle. And this is all fact, by the way. This is not speculation. This is not just in my head. PR people admit this. They know this. There's a difference between early 20th century advertising, which was rationally irrational people who are able to make a decision and we're going to persuade them to let's subvert their reason, appeal to the most fundamental basic drives in people, which is the very thing that civilization has evolved to, to, to conquer, not to eradicate, we do not eradicate the lizard brain, but we conquer it, we subsume it and integrate it into a wider psychological context, which is what the philosophers meant by reason. And that's why I say that reason is the fusion of, of imagination and logic. But now we're living in a culture which is it, it, which is actively not not just making us into the engine of the economy, but actively try, actively trying to eradicate the very foundation of our subjectivity, the very foundation of the thing which makes us individuals as opposed to objects, which makes us human beings as opposed to animals, and it's able to do and and it's able to do this through postmodernism and postcolonialism and all these kind of like niggly little tactics to eradicate the very tradition that upholds that triumph over animalism, but also scientism, the sort of uh, piddling, atheistic, nihilistic, purely logical gets, is basically so self-hating and vacuous that it, that it, that it inoculates, not inoculates, it... Um, neutralizes the, the, the very weapon we have. <clears throat> so, 
It is human subjectivity and the irreducible mystery of the human heart that's under threat, and that's the battle that I'm fighting. And it's a war, and it's relentless, and it happens even before you wake up in the morning. It happens in your sleep. I'm against artificial intelligence. I'm against the scientification of the world. I'm not against science. I love science. I love the whole tradition of science, especially the history of it. But I'm against this um, use of science in order to turn human beings into nothing more than machines and objects, which we're, we are by definition not. I take it as a given, the given of human experience. That's what I was talking about, the existentialist and phenomenological notion of being. There is some essential quality to human beings that is entirely subjective, irreducible, and cannot be understood as an object of scientific inquiry, that there is this domain of experience which is not accountable for in the scientific context, in through the scientific method. That doesn't mean it's a counter to science, it just means it's uh, an intellectual blind spot that demands a different kind of method of understanding, and that understanding is philosophy. And if you think I'm just blabbing on here, fuck you and your presumption, because this is what I did my fucking master's thing on, and all the fucking bastards in that, de in that department were looking at me like I was an idiot. But I was trying to. I I didn't know that I was that I was exactly following on in the existentialist tradition and the phenomenological tradition. And they said nothing to me. I was not guided well. But I'm here, motherfuckers, and I'm ammoing up. As Ice T said, I'm going to go to the library and get some more ammo because my lethal weapon's my mind. got much water here. Anyway, I want to read a couple of posts. One of them is on my blog right now, and it's called The Hatred of Enthusiasm. And anyway, I'll just go, I'm just going to start reading, because I think that enthusiasm is the very energy of this, of this indefatigable subjectivity of the human spirit. And the minute you express enthusiasm in any context these days, it's, it's caricatured as anger. Like, people listening to this, he's just ranting, man. He's so angry, man. You're an idiot. You're a moron. You've got a narrow interpretation of the world if you think that's what's going on here. Read the Old Testament. Read Milton. If you think this is just anger, and just some psychological trauma expressing itself. You're the moron. You're the moron. Trying to reduce everything to noble quantities is the sign of lack of intelligence. It is moronic. It is the instinct of the idiot. True intelligence is the ability to accept mystery. That's why Socrates said what he said. I am wise because I know I am not wise. This is philosophy, people. This isn't science. Your little precious Sam Harris and Dawkins is fuck off. This is philosophy, real philosophy, not piddling logic. 
not analytic philosophy, real philosophy, an endeavor into the mystery of the human soul. <clears throat> anyway, this is my piece on the hatred of enthusiasm, and I'm going to read it right now. Intelligence is often associated with cynicism. The advantage of surrendering to faithlessness and pessimism is, ironically, that it justifies living one's life with a simplistic and ideological certainty. If there is no positive object of belief, then there is nothing to disappoint you and nothing to disillusion you. There is no danger of mystery, no terror in the face of human contingency. It is no wonder, then, that today enthusiasm is seen as such a threat. For the largest amount of people, a level-headed, balanced and mildly sceptical approach to life is the celebrated attitude. Most people prefer stability to risk, manageable emotions to outbursts of passion and adoration. It is, the re it is for this reason that art is considered a great threat, especially art that offers no prudential result or utilitarian justification for itself. It is also the reason that public life is riddled with clichés and repetitive memes. Even among the hipster crowds, the self-appointed outsiders, there is a preference for the known quantity, the familiar, the unspoken rule about social hierarchies and group vernacular. Even the artistic and alternative people in society will choose the known over the unknown because it is a basic human need to ensure security and predictability. Without our certainties and habits, there is no refuge from the contingency of life. Enthusiasm, then, represents the threat of the unknown, a disruption to the status quo. This is also true for enthusiasm's associated experiences, such as beauty, creativity, earnestness, passion, righteous anger, and a visionary sense of the deep meaning and significance of human life. Those who consider themselves switched on, ironic, and wised up to the ways of the world often resort to nothing more than scathing sarcasm and reductionist explanations of all that is confusing and unfamiliar. That is why simplistic ideologies and grand Marxist explanations are preferred to direct contemplation of the complexity and contingency of human life. What appears on the face of it to be an insightful and mature state of mind, cynicism, is in fact an infantile refusal to meet the mystery of life head on. Another reason people fear enthusiasm is that it involves engagement rather than passivity. People who are characteristically enthusiastic tend to be people who are actively engaged with life. The pathologically sceptical or cynical character, on the other hand, delights in its own passiveness. It reclines from life and takes refuge in routine, certainty and habitual thinking. The enthusiastic man is a man who lives in a spontaneous, imaginative and terrifyingly alert relationship to life. Such a person does not accept another's view on face value, nor does he look to consensus or established custom for the final say on the matter. The cynical character seeks salvation from the moment, all the while posing as an acerbic, incisive perceiver of the facts at hand. To such a person, enthusiasm must be mocked and treated with abject suspicion, lest they allow themselves to be exposed as the lazy, nihilistic and contemptuous person that they really are. It is the cynic who longs for death, for comfort, for a risk-free, womb-like existence emancipated from the challenges of making complex choices between competing values. Far better to, dis to dismiss all values, to see humanity as a kind of parasitic disease and life as nothing but an accidental curiosity of physics. The most terrifying thing about enthusiasm, however, is that it is 
that is that it is a signal of the soul. Those who love deeply, who speak and sing vivaciously, who relish profound connections and live in a state of romantic optimism, remind those who have accepted a mediocre state of being of all that they have given up. Art is only acceptable if it confirms such people's pre-existing views. Beauty is only ma- only matters if it performs a function or if it can be in- economically quantified. The, revolution, the revelation of the soul, on the other hand, is threatening to the cynic and nihilist because it is a, f- is a fact of existence that cannot be predicted, quantified, demystified, or controlled. We are reminded in such flashes of non-utilitarian insight that we are mysteries unto ourselves, that our most intimate psyches have hidden the forces in, have hidden forces independent of rational will, <coughs> that we are both fragile servants of nature while at the same time being tempestuous manifestations of that supreme fickleness of, a, of nature. Enthusiasm, then, must be routed from daily life, shut down for good. One way to do this is to directly confront it and shame it, to accuse it of being aggressive and an active threat. The enthusiastic person will be reduced to a slanderous caricature, violently dismissed as an irrational adolescent and disruption of the, to the social order. This is seen most starkly in the way that public consensus greets artistic movements such as rock and roll, punk, hip-hop, grime music. Until very recently, this tactic was embodied in a conservative Victorian prudery of the Mary Whitehouse variety. More often than not today, it is seen as in the fear-mongering crisis peddlers of politically correct activists. However, to, however it is expressed, the message is the same. Get back in your box and behave. Disrupt the safety of the familiar at your peril. A more common way of shutting down enthusiasm, however, is through a passive-aggressive tactic. In various contexts of public life, the office, public transport, social media, and in pubs and clubs, enthusiasm will be sneered at and dismissed through snide mimicking or wet blanket pessimism. The tactic exists in the tone rather than the content of what is uttered, and that tone amounts to saying, who do you think you are? How narcissistic of you to cling to the hope and aim for goodness. If you keep this up, you will be banished. In an age of self-congratulating nihilism and a lazy worship of consumer comfort, enthusiasm is the ultimate rebellion. An earnest, unironic expression of what one loves and what one hates is the most dangerous and most effective way the individual can voice it, can make itself heard and, and felt. The challenge is to push on, despite the wall of shame and hate that appears to have a moral high ground in its cynicism. However, the enthusiasm will do well to remember that love adoration and a desire for something better is in fact the very engine of human progress. Cynicism and contemptuous clinging to the familiar are always signs of moral and social decline. So there you go. I felt good after writing that. I, uh, for some reason, have not been writing these kind of things. And I've realised that there was something holding me back, which is I was feeling, oh, I should write more scholarly pieces, more things based on contemporary issues, you know, more factual stuff, more, you know, not just spouting off about abstract stuff that is on my mind. But then I realized, no, that's what I do. It's philosophy. That's real philosophy. I don't have to pander to the familiar. That's part of my point. I don't have to cite statistics. I'm not interested in statistics. 
I'm not interested in economics. I'm not interested in statistics. I'm not interested. It's irrelevant. And I'm not interested in technology. All those things can fuck off. I'm sick of hearing about them. And everybody's... I'm interested in ideas. And ideas that matter. Ideas of relevance to human existence. Like the subject of this. Cynicism versus enthusiasm. That's real philosophy to me. How to live one's life. How to cope with the paradoxes and mysteries of, of, of being human, of being in the world. I'm angry at this tone of voice. And you see it everywhere. And uh, the, I wouldn't be so bothered about it if it didn't pass itself off, as I say in this piece, as the sort of pinnacle of human intelligence. If you don't have imaginative courage, courage of the imagination to augment critical abilities, you're still a moron. Logical capacity must be tempered with vision. And that's what's lacking from the world. A lot of very much more intelligent people than me. And that's why I'm actually happy to write pieces like this now. To just write off the top of my head. Because I've got coherent ideas here. It's not just rambling. And it doesn't need to be, well, such and such study sites and such and such. It's boring shit. I'm sick of these piddling technocratic piddlers. Boring. The boring technicians and the fucking... What would you call them? The fucking spreadsheet monkeys rule the world. And that's fine. You need that to get shit done. I get it. But if it isn't augmented and tempered with a sense of visionary purpose and meaningfulness, then it is essentially nihilistic and becomes self-destructive and turns on itself. Because all it is is just number crunching and problem solving. And so it will, whatever happens, it will look for a problem to be solved and just becomes an automated process. That's not reason. It's not even logic. It's self-destruction. Posing as enlightenment. Anyway. I had something else I was thinking about earlier on. I wonder if it's worth talking about. No, I've got notes here, but I'm not going to talk about everything that's on my mind because I think I might write about it instead and then I can maybe talk about it later on on a podcast at a future time. <clears throat> Let me just see if there's anything I'm missing here or I've forgotten. I think I've said my piece actually. I think 
that's the wrong document. Give me a second. Oh yeah, here we go. No, I don't have anything else written down here. Those are all old notes. So, I guess I'm done. I don't have any other news. Um, I'm playing a lot of guitar again. I'm practicing sets. So I'll keep you posted about gigs. I have been kind of taking a break off from performing for a while. But I feel like I'm getting back. There's been a lot of stuff happening in my family recently. So it's nice to get back to normal, whatever that is. And um, hopefully there'll be some more journalism going up as well. Oh, I don't know if I... I, I had a book review published last week on Socrates. Uh, it's a new book called Socrates in Love, The Making of a Philosopher by Armand Dangour. Or Dangour, I don't, I don't know which way you pronounce it. I think it's Dangour, actually. Um, <clears throat> he's an Oxford classicist. And he's written this new kind of revisionist take on Socrates, saying that actually it's quite likely that a woman called Aspasia was behind his philosophical approach to life. In fact, hang on, I'll, I'll, there's a hard copy that was printed, but they severely cut it. But luckily, because I actually am the web sub-editor that puts this shit up online, I put my own on. Well, I put my own old version up. I get paid for the same, so... It's a it's a career success because, in a sense, I'm happy to not just be doing book reviews, but to also be putting philosophical ideas onto people's laps on a Sunday morning is quite a nice feeling. But let me just find this. I'll read it, and then, then I'm done. Okay, the headline... The, yeah, the headline is... The beautiful, clever, mysterious woman who inspired the greatest... Oh, hang on, there's a video coming up here of you know, male online adverts. The beautiful, clever, and mysterious woman who inspired the greatest philosopher in Western thought. Socrates in Love, The Making of a Philosopher. Armand Dandrur, Bloomsbury, 20 quid. Rating, 4 stars. The traditional image of Socrates is that of a revolutionary thinker who is always poor, always old, and always ugly. By taking a fresh look at cr crucial, if scattered, strands of evidence, however, Darmon Dangurik believes that the typical view of the philosopher can be returned on its head. Danger, sorry, re-examines existing sources on Socrates' military career and concludes that he was an, an impressive, heroic, an impressive, even heroic man of action, and not just a saintly man of ideas who shunned wealth and status. In addition, Socrates' well-established links to the handsome and artistic Alcibiades as well as the great thinkers of his age. Sorry, in addition, given Socrates' well-established links to the handsome and aristocratic Alcibiades, as well as the great thinkers of his age, Danger connects the philosopher with the social circle of the great Athenian general, Pericles. Both his military prowess and his social connections suggest that Soc the real Socrates was far from humble or impecunious. In Plato's Symposium, Socrates says that erotic love is a catalyst for knowledge of divine beauty. Danger argues that this view was in fact the teaching of the beautiful, clever and mysterious Aspasia of Miletus. The wife, in effect, if not in name, of Pericles, Danger examines that claims that Aspasia 
was the intellectual midwife to Socrates' uniquely passionate approach to life and consequently his entire method of philosophical inquiry. Danger concedes that this attractive and compelling possibility is based on circumstantial details and therefore not conclusive. However, the author's selective and imaginative version of history allows us to see Socrates as a flesh-and-blood person with very human flaws, contradictions and idiosyncrasies. Whether we are convinced or not by Danger's interpretation of Socrates' life, perhaps his chief success is in re-establishing the importance of human love at the heart of West European Western thought. This book offers a welcome corrective to the dry, systematic tendencies in modern philosophy. That felt good, I have to say. Putting a little fucking polemic sting in the tail of a small book review in a national newspaper there was quite good because I'm sick and tired of these piddling technocratic philosophers who've ruined philosophy and turned it into sort of nothing but sort of puzzling. It's just puzzling. Counterexampling and puzzling for its own sake rather than in the service of some visionary belief or some visionary view of the world. So, there you go. <clears throat> I think I'm going to leave it there, but, um, God, oh God, God, I can't believe it. The minute I'm looking at this and then I'm looking at it and then it immediately comes up the, the, the sidebar of shame, you know, all the fucking, uh, enemies of, of the psyche start coming out and um, eroding your, your your integrity from even if you're trying not to look at it. And that's the real... I mean, I really am taking... I really have to find another job because I feel like I'm really working... You know, the people I work... It's fine. Everybody's just trying to get a job and I realise there's a difference between... Everyone's just trying to get along, you know, so I have no problem with anyone in particular. It's just that the culture of of Mail Online itself is evil. It's the great evil. It's part of a wider evil. It's not the only evil. The main evil is this attempt through algorithms to turn human subjects into objects. So I need to, I need to, and it's, but it's almost impossible, isn't it? Because no, nothing, everything you do now is in some way acting in service of that agenda. And we do it ourselves. In a, in a way, it's, it, it's exactly the difference between a genuine erotic intimacy and pornography, right? That, 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 that analogy can be transcribed onto almost everything in public life, right? And we need to be, and, and, and you know, one of the main weapons we have is a kind of vigilance about ourselves. We really need to pay attention to that vigilance. And I'm not saying this in a preachy way, actually. I, I am completely at fault and guilty of it myself. But that's the real war. 100%. Forget Brexit. Forget Trump. Forget the EU. Forget King Yong Banjo. Forget all these people. Doesn't matter. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for uh, listening and I'll speak to you next week for, I think, episode 104. Thank you very much. Cheers.